We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to The Uncontested. Oklahoma City Thunder and NBA podcast featuring Jacob. All you haters come at me. Taylor. You're a step past a hater like I'm Rondo. Afraid your baby mama to a condo. Nick. I really wouldn't mind taking a flyer on Swaggy Pete. Tommy R. I just got done taking a nap. And Justin. I'm too fast. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in today. I am Jacob. We're uh, it's just me and Nick today. Nick, how are you? I'm doing well. Good, good. We are uh, we are in the middle. Hopefully, it's not like the dead center middle because that would be bad for us. In the middle of the Thunder versus Portland series, uh, the series shifts back to Oklahoma City tomorrow, Friday night for Game Three. Thunder are down two zero, and here to talk about the series so far going forward. And looking around the league at some of these other series that are that are at game threes and, and about to be game fours, we have Keith Smith. You can follow him on Twitter at Keith Smith NBA. Keith, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Good, man. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day, um, sacrificing some of your attention from this uh, this Philly Brooklyn game tonight to to chat with us for a little bit. So we really appreciate you, man. Uh, no, all good, man. Happy to do it. Awesome. So, uh, Keith, before we, we jump in, do you mind just uh, for maybe some of our listeners who don't follow you on Twitter, who, who aren't familiar with you, can you just uh, give us a little bit of, of your background, how you got into covering the NBA, um, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. I, I got my start with Real GM, 
and really started on their message boards, like just like anybody, any other basketball fan. I didn't have at the point in time I found their message boards. I didn't have a lot of friends who were really following the NBA or really enjoyed it. It was during one of the NBA's little bit of a down period, and and I I always loved the game, so I was there, and it was I, I migrated over. When some of the I'm originally from Boston and when some of the local sites shut down their comment sections on articles where you'd get the back and forth going. So migrated over there and and I have a natural curiosity and love for um, all things roster building and mechanics. And I really this sounds weird to say, but I really enjoy um, like the collective bargaining agreement and the salary cap and things like that. Those, those are things that they they I like diving in and understanding that stuff. So I had been posting on real GM for a while, got caught the eye of a couple people wanted asked if I wanted to write. I had really little experience writing beyond papers for school. <laughs> and it had been a while since I had been in school. So I spent, spent a little bit of time writing there. Really good team got me up and running and got my stuff better. And then just kind of branched out from there and really uh, just about, gosh, I guess it was, we're coming up on six, seven months now. I, I picked up contributing for Yahoo. And mostly what I write about is the salary cap and the CBA and roster building and free agency and things like that. And then I do some Celtics specific coverage for Celtics blog, as well as some Orlando Magic coverage because I actually live in Orlando now. Okay. Well, the move to, from Boston to Orlando is, uh, I'm not going to say it's better because i've never been to boston before but um for me personally that the weather shift is probably uh, that would be nice for me i would enjoy that yeah every time i think i might want to move back home i remember that they spend a good chunk of the year under 75 degrees and i think better of it <laughs> yep definitely um well i think you just got a whole lot of uh of our listeners and followers um Dreaming big, knowing that uh, knowing that you started just as as a fan of the game, you know, kind of uh, on those message boards and whatnot, and and got a break. That's I think that's really cool. That's uh, maybe not a a a typical route to becoming a basketball writer, and uh, so that that's actually a really cool story, and I really appreciate that. So, as far as CBA and uh, and roster building and cap tactics and all that. Um, I, I I assume like you basically have a PhD in that stuff now to understand that because I've looked at the CBA before and I'm just like, holy shit, man, I have no clue what's going on here. Yeah, it, it took a little while and um, thank God for Larry Coon's uh, CBA FAQ that's out there. The, the, the way I went about learning the CBA was, but so this is going way back. In the day, this was before I was doing any routing. When I was just curious, I, I reached out to both the NBA directly and the NBA Players Association and said, hey, can I get a copy of the collective bargaining agreement? And the NBA was like, absolutely not, no. And the uh, Players Association said, sure, send us $3 and we'll send you a bound copy. So I <laughs> sent them a check. For three dollars, and they sent me a bound copy in the mail of the CBA, and I started That's reading awesome. it. I don't, I don't have any lawyer training or anything like that. I'm, I'm not, not a, you know, a law guy, so it was very hard for me to understand it at first. And then when the FAQ came out, it was like a godsend. Now by that point. I believe the CBA was public and the, the Players Association hosted it on their website. Now the NBA does the same. 
But it was it, well. What I would do is I would read the CBA document itself till I got confused. Then I would find the corresponding works in the FAQ, and that would explain it in plain English to me. Then I'd go back and reread it because generally at that point, once I understood one part, I could understand another part deeper into the CBA, and that that's how I went about learning it. And it's uh, you know one of those things that it, I, I kind of most things in my life I take a very tactical approach to how I learn and figure things out, and that's what I did to try and learn the CBA. And now it's one of those things where, you know, they make changes. This last one made quite a few changes. But but once you have a general gist of it, the changes are also fairly easy to understand as well. For sure. It seems like there's typically not a lot of overhaul. It's uh, just tweaking from one CBA to the other. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, that is fair to say. I would say this this last one had probably some of the bigger, wider ranging changes because you had some new extension rules with the um, the designated player veteran extension, the um, designated rookie extension. They they changed some of the things around that, as well as the the um, advent of the two way contracts. That was probably the thing that I spent the single most amount of time trying to understand was these two way contracts, how they were going to work, and because they were brand new, it was something that. I I think we're all trying to figure out and learn together. And, and there's a pretty good community of people who also enjoy this stuff. And, and everybody's very helpful. And I, you know, had so many people from Eric Pincus to Mark Deeks to Larry Kuhn who would always patiently answer my questions, whether it be via email or Twitter, that I kind of made myself a promise that I would pay that forward and do the same for for other people. You know, well, once I, you know, had some knowledge and got to be a little, little known on there, I, I you know, said, you know, but I'm going to help people out just as much as those guys help me out. So that's something I try to do you know, whenever I can. Nice. That's awesome. So I know this is totally off topic with kind of what we wanted to jump into, but I have another question on this CBA stuff because now you have sure. me fascinated. And, and generally in league circles and in front offices, is it kind of expected of, of either the GM or the assistant GM or someone like that to to really understand the intricacies of the CBA or are do our front offices more and more now uh, kind of hiring people that already have a background and understand that stuff to just be like their, their CBA guy. Does that make sense? No, yeah, no, the question does make sense and it's a good one and it's, it's still kind of a varied approach. So, so the way I always think of it and the way it was explained to me very early on is, is the term general manager has the word general in it for a reason. They they are expected to be very, you know, um general general experts understand everything, have a general knowledge of of everything. And if you think about it, let's let's you know, think about Daryl Morey or Danny Ainge or Sam Presti, one of those guys. Though those guys are they they understand the CBA. Do they know every single in and out and detail of that? They may, but Every team now has someone on staff whose job it is to know the CBA cold and to understand the cap positioning of not only their team, but every other team in the league and understand all those things, you know, as it comes together, that's that that is a role. Now, some of those folks are lawyers and that's the their background as they came to it. Other people are finance and number guys. It came, came to it that way. And it's it's uh, some have been doing it forever. The, the NBA has had a salary cap for a very long time, dating all the way back to the 80s. And so some folks are, you know, they just kind of get handed it when it was a new thing. And, you know, you're you're going to learn this. Go go do it. And they've kept it forever. And then other places they're, you know, bringing people. This summer is kind of interesting because we're seeing a lot of turnover. 
in the front offices in the NBA a lot more than we generally do. You know, anywhere from um, five to seven jobs open or at least changes at the top in organizations. And that that that's big. So that opens up a lot of opportunities. Some teams now even have someone who focuses on the CBA and then they have somebody else who assists with it. Uh, it, it, it really just depends on the staff and what the general manager, president, owner, what they want it to look like. But everybody does have someone that they pay regularly that is, you know, that that's their guy when they have a cap related question. Interesting. That's that's really fascinating. And I I find it especially interesting the fact that you said that some teams have like a lawyer type guy, some teams have someone with a finance background. So it seems like it's it's not like a streamlined approach. You have uh you have different backgrounds, different which leads to different perspectives. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, I don't know. That's just fascinating. You know, that's uh, way over my head, but it's it's really <laughs> fascinating. So, all right. Well, Nick, you want to go ahead and jump into uh, some some not paper basketball and real ball and hardwood <laughs> basketball for us? Yeah. So obviously the Thunder down 0-2 in this series. Uh, they are heading back home for game three in Oklahoma City on Friday night. Um, so obviously our listeners have heard a lot of our takes and we obviously do have a little bit of a thunder bias. Uh, so just, just a speaking, little bit <laughs> <laughs> speaking generally, you know, Keith, from an outsider's point of view, is there one thing that really sticks out to you that has been the difference in the series and is a direct result of Oklahoma city being Owen two in the series? Hey, they, they, they're not making shots. They're getting shots. They're just not making them. You know, and it, it's one of those things where I think Portland has, to some extent, designed their defense around these are the shots we're willing to surrender, and they're doing their best to take away other things as much as they can. But but Oklahoma City is taking a lot of three-pointers, especially in game two. They, I'm, I'm trying to find it, and I apologize. Uh, what, what were they? Yeah, five of 28 in, in game two. That That's a lot of threes when you're not making them. And that's something that Portland is very content to, to really allow and in surrender and when you've got the the starting backcourt is in that game was combined two of 11 uh, uh, jeremy grant was one one of seven or i'm sorry oh, oh one of seven overall over oh, five from behind the arc and paul george just you know the at times he hasn't looked look healthy to me out there so i think i think that is the single biggest reason why why they're you know losing games and then game two especially they couldn't hit anything in portland basically made everything and sometimes basketball you know i know they, they say it on the jump all the time right and it's a, turned into a joke but it really is a make or miss league and when you're when you're making more than your opponent you're gonna be pretty pretty well off and look pretty good so so one one stat that jumps out to me that that kind of really plays into that fact that the the thunder aren't a great three-point shooting team on the season um mm-hmm. They're, I mean, they're not awful. They're, I think, for the regular season, they were like thirty-four and a half percent from from the three-point line. Um, and like you said, that they have taken a lot uh, in this series so far. Um, one stat that I've recently become like, I, I just find it like a really fascinating stat is potential assists. And when you look at potential assists for all the players in the playoffs, uh, their totals so far. Uh, Russell Westbrook has 50 potential assists. The second place person is James Harden with 32. Um, to me, it, it feels very much so that guys that routinely have have made shots for the Thunder just are not. And it's um, 
it's, it's not a matter of like their bad shots or their contested shots. Uh, and, and it seems like Russell Westbrook is setting up his teammates frequently. And, and it's just a, as simple as like a cold spell almost. And, and we've seen the Thunder do this. They've had these ups and downs and these ebbs and flows from the three-point line this year. But I just I found that stat interesting that, that Westbrook has 50 potential passes that could have led to points that haven't, and that leads the, the, everyone in the playoffs by a, a pretty wide margin. Um, so the Thunder are moving the ball well. They're, they're creating looks, and shots just simply aren't going in the basket. You know, and it's like you said, it, it's the simple thing of it's a make-or-miss league. Like, you, you can't do much more than set a guy up for a wide-open three, and if it doesn't go in, then probably not going to win. Yeah, and I think when you did, and that's I hadn't seen that specifically that that stat, but that that is something that I look at a lot. I look at assists to to baskets, uh, you know. And- in that game, they had 21 assists on 35 made baskets. That's really good. You know, when you're hitting on, you know, that that many, that's, you know, you're doing something right there. But the the challenge I, I've always felt with Russ, this goes back all the way to the beginning with him, is he tends to, when he, when he is kicking out and guys aren't hitting shots, you can almost feel it and see how frustrated he gets. And then that's when, you know, he's going to come down. He does that maybe two, three times in a row and the shots don't go in. You know, he's coming down he's taking the next one himself, or he's going to make one of those drives all the way to the basket where he just, he doesn't, he's just kind of putting his head down and hoping for the best. And it's, it's one of those things where I don't blame him for it. Cause I don't see it as a selfish thing. I see it as, all right, if they can't do it, I'm the best player on the team. This is my team. I got to get this done. And so I don't, you know, I don't, it's not one of those things where I'm like, oh, Russ is playing selfish basketball because that's not it. I think it's just one of those things where it's, I got to make this happen. And then you start to see that. And And he did press, you know, a lot in game two. He was only five of 20 from the floor. And some of those shots just weren't good ones, but they always seemed to come after he was, you know, sending out, um, you know, sending out these great passes and team teammates just weren't were knocking down shots. And that that's just tough. You know, that's that's something you you gotta kinda live with. With Russ, I think more than any player in the league, maybe you take the good with the bad. I think that's very fair. Um and and as Thunder fans, we've uh we've definitely experienced that and I can I think Nick and I can both vouch firsthand that you, you see Russ do that a lot where if if the shot doesn't go down off the pass two or three times, yeah, he's He's gonna do, you know, a, a, a dribble up three pointer or or just put his head down. And uh, sometimes it's not the best decision, but you can almost sympathize because, like you said, it's he he almost has this thought of, well, the ball's got to go in at some point, so maybe I'm just the one to do it. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's where where it goes. Yeah, you know, that's what happens. Nick, what do you got next? Um, so I just wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, Damian Lillard versus Russell Westbrook specifically. You know, I feel like this was a series that a lot of people were looking forward to seeing these two guys go head to head. And thus far, Dame has really had the upper hand. And it's to the point now where a lot of these, you know, sports shows are saying, has Dame finally surpassed Russ? Is, is Lillard a better player than Russ? What's your thoughts on that topic as far as is Russ just having a bad series or is Dame really that good of a player that just doesn't get a whole lot of regular season recognition or you know what's going on in this in this duo or this this you know matchup between these two guys 
Man, it's going to sound like I'm doing some fence riding here, but I think it's a lot of all of that. You know, I th- think there there's a lot of things that factor in there. So one easy one is Damian Lillard plays in Portland, plays almost all his games at 10 or 1030 at night, Eastern time, and people just don't see him. You know, and they, they then when they do see him, they see him in the playoffs and his team has not always performed well. So I think that's when people start to underrate him for lack of a better term, and start to kind of chip away at, at stuff. Well, one of the things I don't like very much with uh, just the way we evaluate the NBA is I think we, in general, and I, maybe it's because of Twitter or some of those other things, we focus far too much on what a player can't do versus what a player can do. And Damian Lillard gets beat up a lot for he's 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 not always a great playmaker for his teammates. He doesn't defend you know, at a really high level. But what that passes is this guy's one of the absolute best scoring guards in the NBA. And, you know, and that's, that's worth a lot. It's one of those things where, you know, I was kind of laughing. I'm like, I'm like well, why are we beating this guy up for, for these other things when, you know, he, he puts points on the board and at the end of the day, you need guys who do that. So, you know, so I think that's, that's factoring in a little bit is, is, you know, Dame's maybe finally getting some of that love that he hasn't gotten for a long time. Now for the series, I look at it as Portland and Lillard and McCollum did what they should have done. They won at home. They stepped up. They played really good in a couple home games and and they're up too well. That's what you should do. Let's let's before we, you know, make this thing decided, let's see what it looks like back in OKC. And Russ is, you know, making plays with the home crowd behind him. Because if now, you know, if we talk in a couple days and Russ came out and had one of those monster Russ games and you know, Lillard was just kind of okay. Now all of a sudden are we gonna say, yeah, I knew it. Russ was better. He's the guy. It's just it's I don't like the overreaction stuff that comes with with the playoffs, especially because it, things can change within the span of just a couple games. Yeah, I think I think one thing that has been, you know, more and more common. I don't know if it's our generation or it's the social media era. I think there's a ton of recency bias these days. People have short memories. And they only evaluate players and they only remember, you know, things that have happened, you know, in the last week or the last month. And they forget, you know, what guys or even what teams were doing, you know, at the beginning of the season. And and they, they evaluate people based on what they've done in the past, you know, short amount of time. No, that's definitely true. And, you know, and I think, too, there's a heavy... uh, let me fire off this take because I want to get it out there before anybody else does, because I think people have, yeah. And I think people have this sense of, you know, there, there's two things. One, there's, there's a whole group of people who I got to get this joke off, right? I want to be, you know, the funniest guy on Twitter and let me get this joke out there. And then I've been guilty of it a couple of times too. Um, Generally my stuff's really stupid and and I'm a dad, so it's dad humor (laughs) now. Um, But I think with, with uh, some of the other people, it's, you know, let, let me get these jokes out there. And then other people, I almost believe it's, you know, if they fired off the, you know, yep, Damian Lillard owns Russ and Russ is done and, you know, the Thunder should trade him. Then I think they think, well, everyone is going to forget about it in a day or two and it'll just be gone. And they can come back and, you know, after a big game three from from the Thunder and Westbrook and say, 
yeah, you know, Russ is back. He's the guy. And it's like, wait, weren't you the dude who said like two days ago, this is here. So it's just one of those things where I think people are, you know, it, it is, it's all reactionary. It, it's what, whatever happened, you know, right in my face right now. That's what I remember. It's, it's like all these stories right now, like we got to be worried about the Warriors. Why? Because they, they lost the game to the Clippers. I mean, this is still the team that's, you know, dominated the last you know what four postseason runs like yeah maybe they're more vulnerable i felt that way all season long but that doesn't mean i'm gonna pick against them because of one loss to to the clippers no matter how bad that one loss might have been yeah so talking about these overreactions um one that i want to touch on that i i've really seen from from thunder fans and thunder followers um it, during this postseason run is and it drives me nuts, and, and, and I think you hit on it perfectly, Keith. Um, the the I, I want to get my take out there first so I can be the first person with it. But Terrence Ferguson has not played well in this series so far. Uh, he hasn't shot the ball well. Uh, game one, well, technically both games he was in foul trouble. Game one, the foul trouble came a little bit earlier, which resulted in less minutes. Um, and, and I see Thunder fans saying, like, is Terrence Ferguson playable? You got to get him off the court. You got to find somebody else, blah, blah, blah. When, when, I mean, I, I think amongst a lot of circles, Terrence Ferguson has probably throughout this season earned himself uh, the, the starting two guard position for the Thunder moving forward. And, and it puts, I don't, I don't know if it puts the front office in, in a decision now mode like this summer on what to do with Andre Robertson. But I feel like Terrence Ferguson's game has progressed, especially his shooting, so much that that he's really earned that that two guard spot in Oklahoma City, and and, and maybe either forced Andre Robertson to the bench or forced the the front office to to make some decisions this summer on on what they want to do with that contract. But because of two poor games in the playoffs, which are technically his two first playoff games ever, people are now starting to develop this like really negative view of of Terrence Ferguson. Um, just, just to get your thoughts on him real quick, Keith, uh, how, how much have you watched him this season and, and what are your thoughts on Terrence? Yeah, no, I've watched him a ton. I, he was a guy I was very curious about and interested in coming into the draft. He obviously didn't even play in college and he, uh, went, when, uh, was it Australia? I believe where he went to, yep. uh, was there? Yeah. And played, played a year over there before coming, coming in after high school. And he, so he was a guy I, did, I didn't know a lot about. I hadn't seen uh, very much about him, but you know what, what I'll tell you my overarching things on young players. And then I'll give you my thoughts on Ferguson is everybody wants to give up on these guys too quick. And this is, it's, way too early this guy he's 20 years old he's gonna turn 21 for another month you know that's that's ridiculous and now we're gonna go to to going to a point where we say about this guy is like yeah this this guy sucks well this is a kid who at age 20 shot 37 percent from the uh, from behind the arc in the regular season over 74 games played pretty solid defense he's got a good frame he's really starting to figure things out he's in a tough spot because he's got to learn how to play off you know one of the kind of all-time uh, ball dominant personalities in the nba if you will and russ and then he's got to fit also in next to to pg so that's that's my thoughts on ferguson i think he's fine you know, don't don't give up on him. Again, he's tw- 20 years old. It's, you know, it's way too early for that. Beyond that, Robertson's out. Who the heck do you want him to play instead? 
who who are you, you want to start Schroeder? We've seen that. We 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 know what that looks like. You know those, those lineups are, they're they're okay, but they're, they're not going to do anything special. You you want to start Ray Felton, Abdel Nader? I mean, come on, these are you know back of the rotation guys at this point in their career. If if anything, what you might want to do is question where's the roster depth. That that might be fair. But again, I think you were the hope was this year was Ferguson develops in a far lesser role playing behind Robertson and George. And he's really getting those backup wing minutes for 10 to 15 minutes a night instead of the, you know, 20 to 30 minutes a night that he was logging. So that's, you know, the, the, he's a young kid who was put in a spot that nobody really expected him to be in. And I think he's done quite you know, quite well with that. A couple of bad playoff games on the road. That's not going to change my mind on this kid's potential. For sure. And, and and speaking of that wing depth, you know, I think for I, I think Nick and I talked a lot about this at the beginning of the season that, you know, the Thunder had Terrence Ferguson, who we were hopeful with. Uh, Andre Robertson looked like he was going to get healthy. They had Alex Abrinas, who came off a, a, a pretty solid playoff performance against the Utah Jazz last year. Uh, they have the new kid, Hamadou Diallo, and they picked up Abdul Nader. Uh, it, it looked like they had the, this plethora of wings and and now we get to the end of the season and the thunder literally have no bench wings that they can bring in and play and the rotation is is two point guards and two guys that are probably better suited to play the five in in Nerlens Noel and Markeith Morris and so i i think that lack of of wing depth started off looking really well back in october and as we've gotten into to march and april it's it's really tailored off and the hope was right to have Andre Robertson back. That that was the, the the plan all along. That sometime you know shortly after the holidays, he was going to be back in there. Obviously, suffered a setback, and that's that that's a you know just just a bummer for him. He, he's one of those guys who you know I think would have really helped them just as far as you know him and Paul George together on the wing. The way George defended this year, that's that's just you know almost unfair to to yeah. other teams. You know, and, and I think he would have been great, you know, and, and I always kind of laugh. One, one of my most favorite things is, is a guy like Hamadou Diallo. Every fan loves second round picks and they're like, oh, we stole him. This guy's going to be great. He's going to be the best, you know, best guy. And, you know, our, our GM smarter than everybody else. And then you look at it and it's like, how come he doesn't play? Well, because he was a second round pick and he was a second round pick for a reason. Yep. You know, and it, it's, you know, and it's try, trust me, be, being someone who covers the Celtics, I have heard more stories in including Abdel Nader, who you guys have now, because he had a couple big summer league games of, you know, oh, this guy, you know, why, why, you know, Brad Stevens is a moron. Why doesn't he play him? And then he actually does play him. And all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, Abdel Nader's not very good. I guess he's not ready. And it's like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe the coach who sees him every single day of practice might know something. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's a, you know, it's, it's just one, one of those things where you, you really look at it and you just kind of say, you know, it's, you know, it's, you, you gotta kind of come back on it and say, you know, things didn't exactly go, go as planned. And then in season, just the, where, where the thunder were, you know, cap wise, tax wise, there just wasn't the availability to really upgrade the roster the way I think that they would have liked to, the way they kind of have in previous seasons. It just didn't exist. It was a lot of, all right, what you see is what you get. And we're going to do the best we can with this. For sure. I, I yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah. Nick, so, what do you got next on the docket? So I kind of want to shift from, you know, what's happened so far to what we can expect in the future, what needs to happen. Uh, first off, Ennis Cantor has had two very different games. You know, game one, he was the player of the game. 
had a career night. And then game two, you kind of see the canter most people expected. Um, you know, didn't have, I mean, he still had a solid game, but didn't have near the, near the production he had in game one. So what do you think is more likely going forward in some of these, you know, game three, game four, game five, if there is a game five, do you expect to see more of the, the canter we saw in game one, or do you expect to see the canter in game two? Was one a fluke? Was one more like him? What do you think is going to happen going forward with him? I think it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle, but slightly more towards the way he played in game one with, with a qualifier. I, I think they're going to, the Blazers as an entire group are going to really struggle in game three teams who win the first two at home generally tend to game three. Now you're, you've got the, the other team going back home. They're desperate. They know if you don't win game three, the season's probably over and you've got to really come out. So I think the Blazers might struggle collectively as a group and Cantor might be a part of that because I looked at it as game two. I didn't think he really played badly. I think it was just a game flow thing The the guards had it going so much that it just, by, by the point you really needed him to do much of anything. The game was really kind of, kind of in the, in the bag, you know, in the um, early second half when they took the lead and then extended it from there and really kind of raced away as the game, you know, went down the, went down, throughout the third quarter and into the fourth. So so I think for for a guy like Cantor, you're looking at him just kind of, kind of do what you do, you know, rebound, score, well, when we get you the ball and and go from there, but but I, you know, so that's why I feel like he'll be strong the rest of the series, but I think the Blazers collectively as a group will really struggle to get it going in game 3. But that said, you know, OKC has to get him involved more as a defender. They, you can't just let him lay back and hang out and rebound off all these missed jump shots because if you're doing that, you're not taking advantage of one of the worst big man defenders in the NBA. Definitely. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Um, another uh, thing moving forward that I think is fascinating uh, are the two benches. Coming into this series, I thought it was pretty evident that that Portland had a much stronger bench than OKC. But the way these these first two games have played out, the Thunder bench with with Schroeder, uh, surprisingly with the play of Raymond Felton, uh, with Markeith Morris, with Nerlens Noel, the Thunder bench has really outpour, outperformed Portland's bench in these first two games. Um, is, is that a trend that you see continuing? Do you see it shifting a little bit? Uh, is what the Thunder is getting from their bench a little bit of fool's gold? Uh, how do you see those two benches? I know that's kind of like benches don't matter a whole lot in the playoffs, but um, but what what do you see with those two units? Yeah, well, I, I think what gets we tend to say, you know, depth isn't as big a deal in the, the playoffs, but it's, I always like to refer to it as what, what I call functional depth. If you're, you know, one of these teams that has eight, nine, 10, 11 guys, that doesn't matter because you're not going to play all those guys that much. But if you have eight guys for sure that you know you can go to, that's where you feel really good. And that's where I think OKC felt pretty good. You, you knew you had Schroeder, Morris, and, and then some combination, Noel, Felton, you know, kind of more depending on what the game was asking for, you're going to feel pretty good about that. And I think, think that's where, you know, you don't want to look at them, you know, 10, 11, yeah, Portland's got the beat because now you're talking Nate or Patrick Patterson who's got just fallen off the planet um, as a productive player against, you know, guys on Portland who are pretty good. But when you go top eight versus top eight, well, all right, those first three off both sides, that, that's pretty comparable. I think the difference is 
Schroeder's just one of those guys. He's so hit or miss. He's going to come in and he's either going to lift you, which I think he could do at home and get, get, uh, you know, help the thunder to victories, or he's going to come in and he's just going to shoot you out of games, which is really what he did in game one. He was awful. You know, he's one of the worst players on the floor in that entire game and just couldn't do anything. And, and what I don't like is that, I feel like Billy Donovan, Ferguson had some fouls in that, but I feel like he went away from him almost a little too early. And I think you had Schroeder on the court because I think he was trying to turn it into a, we, we've got to catch up and score points here. We, we got to, we got to make it happen that way. And you're, you're not going to outscore Portland at home. You're not with Lillard and McCollum on the other side. It, it's just not going to happen unless Paul George is, you know, is truly healthy and the guy we saw the first you know four months of the season beyond that it gets really tough and that's that's where i think they they really i think game one was such a missed opportunity because i felt like they they let it get away from them late when they really just turned into a shootout when if they just continue to grind out possessions and really play bully ball i think the thunder might have come out with a win but then it was almost like like we turned it into you score i score and that's just not not a way that they can beat portland yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I I think Cantor was probably late in that game, probably the the catalyst to a game one win for Portland as well with those offensive rebounds. Um, really, really kept OKC uh, from from trying to close that gap there with like the final two minutes left. Uh, Nick, what do you got next? Um, so kind of my last my last point here. It's it's kind of a two part question. Um, What's your prediction for the rest of the series as far as who wins the series, how many games? And the second part of that question is, who do you see stepping up um, you know, most from the way they've played in the first two games for the Thunder um, to kind of make that drastic jump and, and play a lot better than they have thus far this series? Yeah, I think what we're going to see the rest of the way is I think OKC gets back into the series. Portland has historically not been as good on the road in the playoffs as they have been at home. So I think you'll see OKC get back into it. I do think that there is a chance that this could still be a seven-game series. And now, obviously, Portland's up 2-0, so I'm going to favor them to win. Uh, teams who who go up 2-0 tend to win series, I believe it's at almost 94% of the time. So that's that. Uh, obviously, the math doesn't bode well because now OKC, you've got to win four out of the next six games to to win, or next five games, rather, to, to win, and Portland only needs to win two. So that's just, you know, that's harder. But I think as far as who's going to step up for the Thunder, I, I'd like to see them use Mar, uh, Markeith Morris more. I think he's a guy who, especially against the Portland bench players, you could really – kind of do almost a where you force feed him and you say, you know, Hey, go get us something. You'll go make something happen. And I, and I'd like to see them do that because I think I, I look at that Portland bench and I just don't see anybody who can guard him there. There's just not a player out there. If he can really get going challenges, I just don't know if he can bring that. I, I don't know if he's at that, that point, but I'd like to see them try that, you know, to, to get him going. Cause I think they, they've got to get something else. Cause if it's just going to be Russ and PG, you're, you're just not going to get it done. And then obviously I would love to see, you know, on a, as a kind of secondary guy, I'd like to see Steven Adams completely dominate the Cantor matchup to the point where, you know, Cantor is, 
fouled out or, you know, close to it. And he has, you know, five points and, you know, five rebounds and he's done nothing. And Adams is, you know, sitting at a, on a 20, you know, 15 game and, you know, has just kind of really made Cantor, you know, uh, uh, practice dummy out there. I'd like to see, see that happen. But, but I, I, I'm just, Hey, it always leaves me wondering a little bit. Steven Adams is one of those guys I love. And I always kind of wonder like, is there more he can do or are we getting, this is what Steven Adams can do. For sure. It feels like the Thunder tend to go to him early and go away from him as the game goes on as well, which I think is, is frustrating for a lot of people that, that uh, Adams will end the first quarter with, with eight points and six rebounds and then end the game with 14 points and 10 rebounds, you know, and it, it's just like uh, the, they tend to go. I don't know if it's that teams adjust defensively and, and try to pack the paint more on him or, or what it is, but. Yeah, I was. Uh, I'm surprised you couldn't hear my head rattling. I was nodding so hard <laughs> with you. I, um, yeah, I, I'm with you because I, I feel like that is exactly what happens. I think it's more of just it becomes a game flow thing. But that's really that's how the NBA works now, right? <clears throat> it's, it's get the bigs involved early, and then everybody downsizes or you know goes to the guards and becomes a much more perimeter based game. That down down the stretch, it's just. Play, playing through the post becomes a you have to be really really dedicated to play through the post but i think what what okc could do is it, it goes back to what i said about Cantor. you got to get him involved as a defender make him defend on the move because he can't he can't do it you're either going to get a layup a really good jump shot or you're going to get fouled and that's one of the things i think yo okc if they really wanted to go back to and really punish them you know, by going going at Cantor over and over and over again. Yep, I, I mentioned this after we did a, a post-game podcast after game two, and, and one thing that I think the Thunder could could really go to offensively a little bit more to, to try to generate some easier points is I really like the idea of a Paul George, Steven Adams pick and roll where Cantor doesn't have the luxury of dropping back because with Russ, you, you can drop the big back in a pick and roll and, and live – going under a screen and letting Russ take a jump shot. Uh, with Paul George, uh, if you do that, you're really playing with fire. And and so I think if, if the Thunder were able to do that, if they could run that multiple times a game, uh, force Cantor to be even more involved in a pick-and-roll defense where he's really got to pay attention to the ball handler as well, um, it could really open up a lot of things for, for Steven Adams down the middle. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 uh, you know, I guess I can't say it enough. And you know, if the if Portland advances, I'm gonna say it in the second round too. Is you have to make an Ennis Cantor a defender. If you don't, you're you're just you're wasting possessions every every time he just gets to go down, bang with his man, turn to rebound. It's you know, it's one of those things. So I I just you you gotta make this guy get involved. Definitely. So hey, we have. Besides the Thunder, we have, uh, what is it, seven other series going on right now. Which playoff series so far has surprised you uh, the most? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I I really think I'm stalling because I'm thinking. No, it's fine. Um, <laughs> there, I mean, a lot of them have kind of gone not how I expected them to. So I was interested to, no, yeah, to know if for you sure. had the, the same sentiment or not. I, it's... 
It's tough because I thought I'm not overly shocked by Nets Sixers. I thought the Nets could get one, and they did. I expect I picked Sixers and seven in that one. I picked the Spurs to go go long. Oh, oh yeah. I'm sorry. It's obvious for me now. It's Rockets Jazz. I thought the Jazz would be competitive. I I don't. I I got sucked in. They had that really good regular season. The defense is so good. And the fact that Houston has just demolished them in two straight games, that's the biggest surprise for me of anything. I thought Houston would win that series, but I thought they'd be tested and really extended. So that's definitely my my biggest surprise. Let me ask you on that one. Is it a thing where Utah's just not as good as you thought they were? Or do you just think Houston's a really bad matchup for them? Uh, a bit of both. I, I knew Houston was a bad matchup for them, but I thought they could get some things on. I thought the Jazz would be better offensively yep. against the Rockets, and they just they it, it's it's all Donovan Mitchell. If he's not getting it done, they're not scoring any points, and at that point, it's you know write them off. They're they're finished because the Rockets are going to roll. Definitely, yeah. I I would have to agree with you. The the Rockets Jazz one is is the most surprising one. Nick, do you have a different one there? Most surprising series? Yeah. Oklahoma City. <laughs> Touche. I, I had I I never I, I could see us down or see us tied one one going into game three. I never thought we would be down oh two. I, I really, really, really liked our matchup against Portland. I thought it was a great draw for us. Everything was going in our favor, looking at, you know, getting past them in six games and worrying about Denver after that. But, you know, at this point we got we got bigger things to worry about. Yeah, if, if I'm ranking the most surprising games in the playoffs so far, uh, Thunder losing by 20 and Portland is, is and Portland not having Nurk is uh, is probably one of the more surprising outcomes of a single game so far in the playoffs that I would probably put high on my list. But uh, but yeah, the Rockets have just spanked the Jazz two straight games. Um, yeah, none of the rest of them really jump off the page to me. Uh, I was kind of surprised that Orlando got one up in Toronto, but it's game one Toronto. Like we've seen this for four or five straight years now. So poor Raptors. Yeah, fans. We, yeah, we we've seen that movie right a couple yep, times. Yeah, it's yep. you can't blame Demar Derozan anymore. I have a friend of mine who says says that he his uh. He, he, you know, just always gets into it. And he's like, he's like, this is the year. And I, my, my typical response, he, he's a Raptors guy. And he's always like, this is the year. They're not going to pull it off. And I was like, I was like, the Raptors are like a Marvel movie. You know, they're going to lose game one every spring. Just like, you know, a Marvel movie's coming out every spring. <laughs> yeah, pretty accurate. Um, all right, Nick, anything else that, that you want to touch on before we get out of here? I think we got everything covered. Awesome. Well, hey, Keith, thank you so much again for coming on with us today. We appreciate you taking the time out of your day and uh, and spending a few moments with us to to kind of break down this series and, and give us a, a perspective that's not from people with uh, with thunder colored glasses on, because that's basically all we are. <laughs> No, I hear you guys. It's um, you know, uh, I'll leave it with I think think better times are coming. I think they're gonna you're, they're gonna figure some stuff out here, and I still think this is gonna be gonna be a competitive series that goes you know deeper than what it looks like it might right now. I just think the OKC's got too much talent. They're too good. I am worried though. It uh, I am I, I thought Paul George was feeling better than it looks like he is, and that's probably the single biggest thing that's got me worried going forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, trust me, there's a lot of anxiety in Oklahoma City about uh, about that shoulder, uh, whichever one it may be, because apparently it jumps back and forth. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of anxiety about that shoulder. So um, 
Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for checking us out. Again, go follow Keith on Twitter. He is at KeithSmithMBA. Great insight, great statistics. Uh, He's a must-follow for whenever July 1 gets around here for free agency. We will be back at you again tomorrow post-game after the Thunder Portland game, 8.30 p.m. Friday night. Uh, Until then, appreciate you guys. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore uncontested, and we will talk to you later. See you. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.